Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 177. And that song was Belial by the band Voice of Doom. That's listener John Steinheimer's band. Uh, I wonder if it's all right to word it that way. Some of my bandmates used to get touchy when I used the phrase my band, like I was trying to claim ownership or something, when I really meant it as in the band I belong to or that I'm a part of, like my family or something. Um, Only a minute in, and I'm already being overly analytical. Reel it in. But thanks to uh, Voice of Doom for letting me play their music. I really dig it. Uh, I was telling John earlier that I'm a big old school Misfits fan, and it kind of has that feel to it. Uh, I'll play another one of their songs in its entirety at the close of the show. And you guys know me, I'm a non-believer, but I love to talk about all things occult. Uh, So maybe I'll take this as an excuse to talk about Belial. I believe it's an old Hebrew word that uh, means generally something like worthless or something like that. And here I am actually clicking away as I'm recording... Uh, Yeah, and here's what Wikipedia says. Um, The term Belial is a Hebrew adjective meaning worthless from two common words. Beli or Beli meaning without and Ya'al, not Ya'al, but Ya'al meaning value. It occurs 27 times in the Masoretic text in verses such as the following. And it uh, gives an example from the book of Proverbs 6.12. And it says, a naughty person. And then in Hebrew, it would be Adam, Belial, Belial, or Belial, Belial. Yeah, because I think Adam means man or person. For a minute, I was confused when I saw the name Adam there. And it says, of these 27 occurrences, the idiom sons of Belial appears 15 times to indicate worthless people, including idolaters. Deuteronomy 13.13, the men of Gibeah, or Gibeah, uh, Judges 19.22.2013, the sons of Eli, uh, Samuel 2.12, and so on and so on. That says in the King James Version of the Christian Bible, uh, the name Belial is capitalized. But sometimes, in some versions of the Bible, it's read as a phrase, and they don't use Belial as if it were a a proper noun or a name. So, in one instance, they say the sons of Eli were worthless men, instead of characterizing them as sons of Belial. Then it's also saying here that the term Belial appears frequently in Jewish Second Temple period texts, in a kind of apocryphal texts. And Belial's also mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered at Qumran. And uh, he's characterized as a, a being who is the leader of the Sons of Darkness, because a, a, a major theme in the theology of the Essenes, of the Dead Sea community, was this apocalyptic war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And apparently Belial was thought of as the leader of the sons of darkness. And here's a bit from the Dead Sea Scrolls. You made Belial for the pit, angel of enmity, and darkness is his domain. His counsel is to bring about wickedness and guilt. All the spirits of his lot are angels of destruction. They walk in the laws of darkness. Towards it goes their only desire. Then the Book of Jubilees, uncircumcised Gentiles are called sons of Belial. Um, see, Christianity, 
Uh, Wikipedia is saying Belial only appears once in the Christian Bible uh, when Paul the Apostle asks, What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And that's uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 6.15. But saying here in most manuscripts of Corinthians, it appears as Beliar and not Belial. And uh, they're suggesting here that has something to do with a change in Aramaic pronunciation. But that's saying that the Septuagint in the Old Testament of the early Christian church uh, generally renders the quote-unquote sons of Belial um, as lawless men or um, sons of the pest. And that kind of reminds me of Beelzebub or Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. But then I think it eventually it makes its way into medieval demonology. And often a, a lot of these kind of epithets seem to be later taken on as uh, different names for the devil. You know, you hear all these ominous occult names used almost interchangeably for Satan, like uh, Asmodeus, Beelzebub, uh, sometimes I think Belial when they all have their uh, own etymologies. Or is it Asmodeus? I can remember playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, with friends as a teenager, and I think we used to uh, pronounce it Asmodeus. But Asmodeus, a.k.a. Eshmedai, I think it is, is a, a king of demons, and uh, Wikipedia is saying mostly known from the Deuterocanonical Book of Tobit, in which he is the primary antagonist. He was supposed by some Renaissance Christians to be the king of the nine hells. And I haven't got around to it yet, but at some point I, I really want to do an episode where I talk about the history of hell or I talk about um, the evolving concept of the devil and maybe talk about all these different uh, demonic figures that we find in medieval demonology that have their roots either in the um, Hebrew Bible or or in apocryphal Hebrew lore and writings, etc. But I wonder if this was also part of the inspiration for the song. <laughs> I recently did, well, maybe not so recently the way time flies, but this past Halloween, uh, I did a special where I just spent, I think it was almost two hours, talking off the cuff about different horror movies. And one of the horror movie franchises I talked about was Basket Case. And uh, Basket Case is, is kind of this irreverent, dark horror comedy franchise. And it's about this guy who's kind of like a handsome, normal-looking young guy, but he was bored with this disgusting, misshapen, conjoined twin, uh, this monstrous little thing that almost looks like a living tumor. And... Uh, they surgically separate them, but they still have a psychic link. And, um, and this deformed twin goes around, you know, mauling and killing people. And I noticed in the, the Voice of Doom song, they use the phrase separation anxiety. So maybe it's partly inspired by the uh, Basket Case franchise. If so, how very perceptive of me. Oh, and I want to say one more thing about Voice of Doom and uh, my interaction with, with John through the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, which is usually a, a horrible way to start off a conversation. But, uh, but uh, my apologies, John, if this was supposed to be top secret classified, I don't know. But he was telling me how a, a former member of uh, Voice of Doom or, or one of the original lineup uh, back in the day was also a member of the Glenn Danzig band, uh, Samhain. 
And that's maybe John can answer this question for me, actually. I know that the proper pronunciation of Samhain, S-A-M-H-A-I-N, is actually Sawin. It's a Celtic word. And Samhain is the ancient Celtic New Year, where they celebrated the coming of the New Year at the end of November. And they celebrated with sacrifices and bonfires and things like that. And that was supposedly a big inspiration for our modern Halloween. Uh, Our modern Halloween is basically a combination of the Celtic pagan Samhain mixed with Christian All Hallows Eve, which is meant to, a hallow is basically an archaic term for a saint, which is was a time to kind of recognize all saints, not just the big names, but all saints. And obviously, Christianity had a habit of kind of appropriating existing pagan customs. It was thought it would be a lot easier to win people over to Christianity if rather than trying to outlaw or obliterate existing pagan customs, you instead Christianized their customs. So the people still got to have their customs, but they were paying their lip service to uh, Christianity. So uh, I can even remember watching, I think there was an animated Ghostbusters cartoon when I was a kid, and there was a bad guy in it named... Samhain or Samhain. It was pretty cool looking. It was like this phantasmal specter ghost with like an evil jack-o'-lantern head. But I remember even as a kid, I used to get uh, (laughs) perturbed because I'm like, it's Samhain, you know? But um, I never knew how Danzig meant for the band name to be pronounced. Did Danzig intend it to be pronounced Samhain or Samhain? Or did he personally go with the proper Celtic pronunciation, Samhain? I've never been able to find an answer to that. But I know in his music, both in his solo work and in the music of uh, Samhain, he pronounces the word Samhain. Because uh, a lot of Samhain's songs have to do with, um, with well, Halloween and Samhain and <laughs> stuff like that. And I was telling this to uh, to John that when I was a teenager, maybe, I don't know, if I, I'm trying to think if I was maybe late middle school, early high school, I saw the video for Glenn Danzig's mother, not Glenn Danzig's actual mother, but his song mother, on MTV, and you guys know I'm a huge Doors fan, and automatically I thought, wow, this guy's like an evil Jim Morrison. Uh, well, Jim was pretty dark, too, so maybe I should say eviler Jim Morrison. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you think about a song like The End, it's not exactly standard hippie fare. And so I automatically became a Glenn Danzig fan. And then I kind of retroactively, you know, I went back through his music catalog and I became a fan of his first band, The Misfits. And I was talking about this with John, too. I'm a fan only of the original Misfits with Glenn Danzig. They later replaced him with Michael Graves. And Michael Graves actually seems like a cool guy. And I actually uh, like his voice and and some of the work he's done with, like, um, Marky Ramone and and things like that. But to me, the Misfits, the real Misfits is the Glenn Danzig era Misfits. Uh, And I actually, a friend a long time ago when I, like, had just gone out of high school, invited me to go see the Misfits play at a place called the Middle East in Cambridge, Mass., where my band actually played once. We were supposed to open for the Insane Clown Posse, and we actually got snowed out. And uh, 
I think all of us like the fast size that maybe that would have been our big break, you know, had we just not gotten uh, snowed out. That was like right before the insane clown posse took off. Um, and I asked my friend, I'm like, the misfits with Danzig, are they back together? And he's like, yeah, yeah. They're back. And I'm like, you sure? He's like, yeah, yeah. So we get there and I see this little guy come out. I'm like, geez, it looks like Glenn Danzig from the misfits error. Um, but no, it was Michael Graves. It was still a good show, but man, you know, you go somewhere and you're expecting like a Misfits reunion and it's not Danzig, you know? And I think I actually, I got shit-faced and after the show, I ran it like full speed towards one of the guys because I saw them exiting through the back door, jumped on one of the members of the Misfits. I'm like 5'10". These guys all look like they're over six feet or something and they're built like bodybuilders. And I just leapt in the air and wrapped my arms around the guy. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a huge Misfits fan. And luckily the guy was really nice about it. And I think I even mentioned how I was in a band too. And he gave me like, you know, like a sports figure would, like a pep talk, like, yeah, keep going with it. You know, don't give up the music. Every time I think about that story, I cringe, not just because I ran up and hugged another man out of nowhere, but I cringe because I probably could have very easily have gotten my ass kicked by either a member of the Misfits or a bodyguard, but they're actually pretty nice about it. Um, yeah, but so the Misfits, if you're not familiar, are an early punk band and probably not just one of my favorite punk bands, but one of my favorite bands in general. Most of the songs are really kind of high energy and, and super punky, obviously, and like super short. A lot of Misfits songs are like two minutes long or, or under or something. And Samhain, or Samhain, however it's, it's meant to be pronounced, is more... Uh, so I've heard some people characterize it as death rock. I'm always wary about slapping labels on other people's music because I don't want to insult anyone because I know people don't like having their music wrongly pigeonholed or whatever. But some people have called it like death rock or doom rock or, or whatever. But it, it's not quite punk it's it's slower it's darker I'm, I'm trying to think how to characterize it but actually a couple of old misfits songs Danzig kind of reinvented well with uh Samhain like the song um all hell breaks loose um uh the song Halloween let's see even twist of Cain uh, there was a Samhain version of Twist of Cain, which, of course, would go on to become a big uh, Glenn Danzig solo project uh, song. And I, I've heard over and over again through the years how, and, and I, I tried to couch it in a diplomatic way when talking to John, that uh, I've heard that Glenn, you know, I said, I've heard that Glenn can be quote unquote difficult to work with. Uh, but I've heard that Glenn Danzig can be kind of temperamental, uh, can be tough to, to get along with. Um, I think recently, probably like maybe like a few months back, I saw a fresh video of him on some metal uh, website, uh, like destroying a fan's camera because a, a fan had tried to take pictures of him or something like that after a show. Or I forget how exactly it went down, but 
And then there's there's an infamous video, and I remember feeling kind of crestfallen when I saw it years ago. There's video on YouTube. I'm sure it's still up. I, I, for, I forget the name of the band. They're kind of like a Hispanic metal band, kind of like a hip-hop metal band, maybe. Uh, I think the word Kings might be in the name. I forget the exact name. And uh, I think Glenn Danzig had invited them to, like, open for him or something like that. And then something happened where, like... One of the bands was late or something, or there was there was some kind of misunderstanding about time management or something, and I think maybe the band in question didn't get to play or something weird like that happened. And there's a video of the lead singer and the band kind of approaching Danzig about it, and Danzig kind of does the tough guy thing and gets in their face and uh, I think kind of threatens them. And this kind and Danzig is small, but he's really kind of well built, has like a heavily muscled physique. Yeah, and Danzig got right in the lead singer's face, and I forget who threw the first punch, but the lead singer just clocks Danzig, and Danzig drops, and then I think he just kind of scurries away and, and runs off. And and so like I have friends who are and a shout out to my friend Adam Flynn, who's a, also a big. Danzig slash Misfits slash uh, Samhain fan. And even Adam, who at this point in time actually has a mohawk, which he can flip forward into a devil lock. <laughs> um, you know, huge fan will say that, you know, he loves his music, but he doesn't really, you know, like Glenn Danzig. He kind of thinks he's an a-hole or whatever. Um, I don't know if I'm willing to go that far, but from everything I've heard over the years, he's not the most pleasant individual to be around. Uh, but even if that's the case, I still absolutely love his music, especially uh, Samhain and early Misfits stuff. And and here's, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the weekend out if once in a while I didn't divulge or confess something embarrassing. You know, uh, one of my favorite adult film actresses is, <laughs> here we go, is a girl named Mandy Morbid. I've always had a thing for, like, goth and alt girls and uh, and busty girls. She's, like, this naturally busty girl with, like, a giant pink mohawk. And she's in a, a porn movie that features all goth girls. And her and another girl, I think they go by Glenn Danzig's house. And Glenn Danzig actually makes an appearance. And he's, like in this porn movie, like he does this brief cameo. So there I am admitting to not only watching porn, but telling you who one of my favorite porn stars is. So there you have it, friends. But yeah, John, if you know how to properly pronounce the band name, how Danzig uh, intends for it to be pronounced, please let me know. And actually, I'm looking uh, through my online conversation with John here, and I, I want to make sure that Voice of Doom... Uh, you know, that they, they get all the, the plugging they uh, deserve here. That sounded weird, almost vaguely sexual plugging. Um, but I want to give them some some plugs. It looks like John gave me a couple of links here. Uh, let's see, there's www.misfitscentral.com slash bands slash voice of doom. Then there's another one, uh, discogs, D-I-S-C-O-G-S dot com slash voice of doom. I don't know if Voice of Doom has been around for a while, so I don't know if that's for the recent stuff that John's doing with them or if that's older stuff. But I figured, hey, it can't hurt to uh, give you those links. 
Wow, I spent so much time talking about uh, different bands and stuff I'm into. Uh, I forgot what I was supposed to be talking about this week. Uh, I know there was something else I wanted to uh, discuss. Let's see. Oh, yeah, so last week I mentioned in passing how the Hebrew Bible doesn't really mention the concept of hell. The closest we get is Sheol, this kind of gloomy netherworld, the abode of the dead in general, but not a place of punishment. Uh, well, friend of the show, Dirk Stabbins, uh, left a comment on the YouTube version of that episode in which he mentioned some Old Testament passages that seem to suggest the absence of an afterlife altogether. So I thought I'd read that now. And, uh, Dirk says, Ecclesiastes 9.5, For the living they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. And then Job 14, 7 through 12. For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. And then Dirk goes on to say, The Old Testament not only knows nothing about an afterlife, Job and Ecclesiastes assert there's not going to be one. My understanding is that the concept of hell was introduced in the intertestamental period and is a concept pulled from Jewish apocalypticism, whether or not there was also an integration of Zoroastrianism. And I'm glad that uh, Dirk brought up, uh, and I'm almost tempted to to name Dirk. I actually don't know his real name, but uh, he's also a uh, Twitter friend of mine, and he uses different aliases. But I'm glad Dirk brought up Zoroastrianism. It's something I used to absolutely be fascinated with, but I haven't talked about for a long time, which is kind of strange, given how much I like to talk about the history of religion on this show. But Zoroastrianism is, uh, I think it's the world's oldest monotheistic religion. And one of the key characteristics of it is a heavy emphasis on dualism, on good and evil, light and dark. And uh, it, it's thought that it heavily influenced uh, Judaism, uh, Second Temple Judaism, uh, Judaism, I think, and also uh, Christianity. Uh, the main guy, uh, the, the main god in uh, Zoroastrianism is Ahura Mazda. You've probably seen the symbol of Ahura Mazda before. It looks like an ancient Mesopotamian deity with a lot, kind of looks like Sargon of Akkad <laughs> with uh, two big wings, uh, a wing on either side. Uh, that's kind of the, the symbol of Ahura Mazda. And then Araman is the kind of like the, the devil in uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, who's you know, diametrically opposed to Ahura Mazda, kind of like the divide between God and Satan, uh, which has led me in the past to be tempted to call Christianity a dualistic religion instead of, instead of simply a monotheistic religion. Because even though God is the head honcho, uh, as a force of evil, people put Satan up on a pretty 
high pedestal to the point where we almost look at it as this constant cosmic battle between darkness and light, between good and evil. And then if you want to go into the veneration of saints and the Virgin Mary uh, and and stuff like that, sometimes uh, it stays with Catholicism. I was brought up Catholic, even though I'm a non-believer now. It it sometimes can almost seem like Christianity borders on polytheism. I think I talked about on the show before, that was one of the concerns, I think, of Martin Luther and um, and the Reformation was that there was an overemphasis on other figures and instead of just placing emphasis on, on Jesus Christ. There was this, uh, what they saw as this kind of inordinate veneration of saints and, and uh, archangels and things like that. But yeah, the, the, the prophet, in Zor- the main prophet in Zoroastrianism is Zoroaster, uh, also pronounced Zarathustra or spelled Zarathustra. And as someone who read a lot of philosophy in the past and who had a a kind of brief fascination with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche or Nietzsche, uh, tomato, tomato, I still, to this day, am kind of puzzled why Nietzsche adopted or appropriated the name Zarathustra. Those of us who have even passing knowledge of Nietzsche are probably aware of uh, his connection with the name Zarathustra. He, of course, uh, wrote the book Thus Spake Zarathustra, or Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is kind of an allegory, which focuses on this character Zarathustra. But as someone who is so opposed to religion, etc., I never really understood why he chose the name Zarathustra. Maybe uh, someone out there can explain it to me. And uh, yeah, Wikipedia characterizes Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and I actually read it some time ago. It says, uh, much of the work deals with ideas such as the eternal recurrence of the same, the parable uh, on the death of God, and the prophecy of the Ubermensch, or the, uh, the Overman, the Superman, which were first introduced in the gay science. And gay had a different meaning back then, don't be silly. <laughs> um... And that's another thing that always baffled me about Nietzsche is uh, eternal recurrence. Um, I never really got that either. It's kind of this idea that and it, it always seemed like a almost like a quasi mystical idea to me that eventually everything you, you know will repeat itself. Uh, everything will kind of come into being again or play out again, almost in this cyclical fashion. It never really made sense to me, and I never really understood why Nietzsche embrace this idea. Um, Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. Maybe I'm taking it too literally. I don't know. And I still like Nietzsche's passion. I like some of his ideas. But reading Nietzsche used to kind of give me a headache. It it was just (laughs) his ideas for me were too strenuous to continually maintain or embrace. And his writing style was almost, uh, it almost bordered on verse. And I know, yeah, we're dealing with reading translations here. The original is written in German. But even so, he had this very kind of poetic or lyrical or bombastic style, which I I thought made some of his work kind of difficult to read, to be honest. Once in a while, I'll still flip through the will to power and, you know, I'll find a a quote I like. And I liked how he used to talk. Uh, Nietzsche was a big lover of music. He was actually a musician himself, a pianist. And uh, he used to talk a lot about the Dionysian versus the Apollonian, you know, the, the, the kind of 
the chaotic and the volatile versus the the kind of harmonious and orderly in a way. And of course, that's referring to uh, the Greek gods Apollo and Dionysus. And Nietzsche had a heavy influence on Jim Morrison, and uh, especially uh, the idea of Dionysus had a, a big influence on Jim Morrison, the idea of the Dionysian. Uh, Dionysus was the Greek god of wine, but he was more than that. He was uh, almost this god of primordial rapture in, in a way. Um, I think I actually might be the king of digressions. Somehow I managed to get from Dirk Stabbins and Ecclesiastes to uh, Frederick Nietzsche and Dionysus. Yeah, but to Dirk's point, the Old Testament doesn't really have a heck of a lot to say about the afterlife, really. You know, but here and there, there are these kind of little cryptic references or hints or something. I'm reminded of one strange passage that I always liked because I've long been fascinated by this mysterious figure, Enoch, that's only mentioned briefly in the Old Testament, but that's featured a lot in Jewish mysticism. But Genesis 5.24 says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Very weird passage. What does that mean, God took him? Did Enoch just cease to be? Did God take him to some heavenly afterlife? And what does it mean to walk with God? Was he literally walking with God, like walking with dinosaurs? Or, uh, oh, I amuse myself. Or does it mean he was just a, um, a kind of righteous figure and walked with God is meant to be taken metaphorically? But in apocryphal Jewish belief, Enoch became the archangel Metatron. Not Megatron, uh, like in the Transformers, but Metatron. Uh, but yeah, I've always been uh, fascinated by that figure. But a way, to me, it kind of makes sense that you might almost expect that the Old Testament might not be too preoccupied with the afterlife. Because when you think about Judaism, at least modern Judaism, generally speaking, it doesn't seem like... Judaism is too preoccupied with the afterlife. And I know this is just anecdotal, and my Jewish friends or, or acquaintances don't seem, don't seem to be preoccupied with uh, the afterlife in the same way that believing Christians uh, I know are. And I've talked about this on the show before, but one of my favorite TV shows is uh, Northern Exposure. And uh, there's this great scene where Dr. Joel Fleischman because the whole point of Northern Exposure is that it's kind of a fish-out-of-water story. you got Joel Fleischman, played by Rob Morrow, this young Jewish doctor from New York, who I think because of financial loan difficulties or something, ends up stuck in some kind of out-of-the-way part of Alaska, Sicily, Alaska. And uh, he's surrounded by... I think that maybe they'd be Inuits by, uh, you know, native Alaskans and by, you know, these different quirky characters. And there's one episode where he's at a funeral or maybe it was a wake because it was in someone's house. There's like a buffet line and stuff. He's sitting there getting food and there's a priest next to him. And, and the priest sheepishly asks him something about whether or not he believes in the afterlife. And he's talking about, as a Jew, his take on it and, and that. He doesn't really believe in a literal afterlife. And as he's sitting there slapping a sandwich together or something, he says, 
the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout, <laughs> basically, you know? I remember, uh, I've spoken about this on the show too, there's this kind of poetic metaphor for union with God that I kind of like. Um, I don't know if it was a rabbi who said it, maybe if anyone out there recognizes it, you can let me know the origins. But this idea that, this Jewish idea that we're all little flames who return to the one big flame that is God. And to me, that almost almost sounds kind of like Eastern mysticism. It doesn't sound like you're talking about a quote-unquote personal God or the survival of the individual ego self. It sounds like you're talking about essence, whatever that might be, returning back to whence it came. But we're not talking about necessarily eternal existence of the individual self or something. But I know there are all different sects of Judaism, and and there are some kind of ultra-Orthodox sects out there that do seem to embrace more of a literal interpretation of religious texts, or that hold ideas that are a lot more akin to, say, fundamentalist Christian beliefs or, or creationist, even young Earth creationist beliefs, than they do with the more kind of figurative approach that we see perhaps embraced by mainstream uh, Judaism. I forget which Richard Dawkins documentary series it was. He's got a couple of them. There's uh, The Root of All Evil, and then there's uh, The God Delusion, not the book, but uh, a series um, based on it or inspired by it. And he goes around talking to all different fundamentalist believers. He talks to Ted Haggard. He talks to some woman who doesn't believe in evolution. And he also talks to an Orthodox rabbi situated somewhere in England. And he talks about how, even though this rabbi was born in England, the Orthodox community he comes from is so insular, so isolated, that the members still have these kind of strong European accents. And this rabbi that he interviews actually has views about the age of the earth that are unnervingly similar to those of a young earth creationist. Uh, Food for thought, I guess. I'm not necessarily sure where I was going with all that. Oh yeah, it kind of plays into what Dirk was talking about with, you know, the Old Testament not having a lot to say about the afterlife. Um, and you guys can probably tell this episode isn't scripted. <laughs> the more scripted episodes tend to be the shorter ones. The, the lengthy ones that end up over the hour-long mark that are full of, full of digressions, those are the ones that are just completely stream of consciousness off the cuff. And I had a list of news stories uh, I was going to go over, but I actually don't think they're all that juicy, so <laughs> maybe I'll just skip the news stories for this week. I mean, uh, there was a couple about the Pope. Pope suggests women can use contraception during uh, Zika crisis, and that's, of course, that uh, contagious disease that affects pregnant women that has found its way to uh, the civilized West. And I think anything other than saying you're for women being able to use contraception during a crisis like this. Um, I mean, forget that. Any opinion other than that women should be allowed to use contraception is crazy and backwards and primitive anyway. So if the Pope is saying he believes women should be able to use contraceptives uh, during a, an outbreak like this, I'll give him a slow clap. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the right uh, 
viewpoint, in, in my opinion. It's it's the humane and responsible uh, point of view. Um, but most of us probably already hold that point of view. Then another one, Pope Francis on Donald Trump. This man is not a Christian. <laughs> I don't care whether or not Donald Trump's a Christian, but the Pope's probably right in a sense. Uh, Donald Trump might technically consider himself a Christian. Uh, I think he comes from German stock. He might be a Presbyterian or something. Um, but he doesn't seem like a very religious guy. But, you know, who knows uh, what people do in their private lives uh, if, you know, for all we know, the guy kneels down and prays last thing before he crawls into bed every night, his gilded bed, who knows. Um, but, he, yeah, he, do, he doesn't strike me as the religious type. And uh, it was kind of funny when he was trying to convince people that he was religious. He's talking about how... Yeah, I drink the little wine, I eat the little cracker. I'm like, I don't think you're necessarily going to win over Christians with that, you know, kind of condescending attitude. And yet he has. I think at least uh, for a while, he was polling better than Ted Cruz, who wears his religion on his sleeve among uh, evangelicals. I don't know if that's changed or not. Um, but me, I don't care what what a presidential candidate's religion is, as long as they don't let any of their superstitious religious beliefs get in the way of um, running the country in a fair and effective manner. But whenever I hear a candidate thump the Bible or kind of wear their religion on their sleeve, it does worry me. And I actually find myself sadly hoping that they're only spewing religious rhetoric for the votes and to appease their base and that they don't actually believe in it. Because the idea of a person with uh, sincere religious beliefs, especially if they are a biblical literalist, say, holding the highest office in the land, uh, I do find that worrying. And we all know that, you know, George W. Bush during his um, tenure said some troubling stuff ab about how God helped him with his decision-making uh, and things like that. And that's kind of scary. The God that lives in your head, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, advising you on how you should run the country and make um, decisions that can have dire consequences on the world stage, like whether or not to go to war. And even like when, when Mitt Romney was running, I don't think Mitt spoke all that much about his religion, maybe because he knows that even though Mormonism is arguably a form of Christianity or an offshoot of Christianity. It still holds what a lot of mainstream Christians consider to be some bizarre beliefs or teachings that don't quite, you know, jive or jive with uh, mainstream Christianity. You know, Joseph Smith with his magic seeing stone or whatever it was in the, uh, the golden plates and taking ancient Egyptian papyri and trying to pass them off as... Um, ancient Mormon texts and all that stuff. Um, this extremely offensive notion that Native Americans are really uh, a lost tribe of Israelites or whatever the asinine belief is specifically. I've covered it a lot on the show, but uh, I, I don't remember all the, uh, the finer points. And it's, you know, politicians get so offended if you question their faith or if you try to drag their religion into it. But to me, it's like, if you're aware, not to be crude, but if you're wearing magic underwear, if you're literally believing in the tenets uh, and the dogma of religion created by a 19th century huckster, uh, we have a right to know that. 
we have a right to know if you literally believe in this stuff and you want the privilege of holding the highest office in the land. Sorry, buddy. Um, and the same goes for Christianity and any other religion. If you literally believe in this stuff that contradicts scientific fact and rational thought, we have a right to know. And sorry if you find it offensive that, that we want to know just how superstitious your thinking might be. Am I getting upset? I feel like I'm getting worked up. I'm so mellow, it probably doesn't seem like I'm getting upset. Why the hell am I talking about Romney and Mormonism? No, I'm not drinking alcohol. Uncharacteristically, I'm just drinking uh, Pepsi. But, yeah, but I think Dirk advised me that rather than just read those biblical passages he supplied me with, that I should play a bit uh, from a Bart Ehrman debate where he's talking about the, the lack of a, a notion of the afterlife in the Old Testament and... and uh, Bard is kind of expounding on that and, and offering passages. And I did watch the debate, and uh, I believe it was it was Bart Ehrman versus Kyle Butts, or Kyle Butt, I think the guy's last name is, this, uh, this kind of Christian apologist, I guess. And Kyle Butt or Kyle Butts kind of sounds like a porn name or something. And no, I don't watch that kind of porn. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But if uh, any of you guys listening aren't familiar with with uh, Bart Ehrman, if you're asking yourselves, who the hell is Bart Ehrman? And I remember I used to uh, call him Bart, his mill initials, D. I used to, re when I first found out about him, I was so excited, so inspired by what he had to say that I used to talk about him a lot on the show in the early days. I used to call him Barty Ehrman, and I'd say it really fast. It sounds like one long, weird name, Barty Ehrman. But Bart Ehrman is a biblical scholar, probably one of the best and most respected out there, uh, he started out as a believing Christian and uh, went to seminary and everything. And through his study of his rigorous study of biblical text, he came to the conclusion that this stuff should not be taken literally. And uh, he now considers himself uh, an agnostic. And what he says one of the main reasons, other than, you know, biblical, contradictions and, and uh, textual issues. One, one of his biggest reasons for kind of losing his faith or move, moving away from Christianity for him personally was the problem of evil, also uh, referred to as theodicy. And he's done a number of debates uh, on that, on theodicy or the problem of evil. And uh, if you haven't watched any of them yet, you should, you know, scour YouTube and look for them. I, I think he he did a theodicy debate against uh, Dinesh D'Souza. And, um, and the issue of theodicy or the, the problem of how to harmonize belief in God with the problem of evil, I think that also came up in that debate that I was just referencing uh, against uh, Kyle Butt or Butts. I think his name just might be Kyle Butt, but for some reason Kyle Butts sounds funnier to me. But I think Bart Ehrman is just amazing. And um, and I think whether you're a believing Christian or you're a non-believer, uh, if you want to learn some really interesting things about the Bible, the history of biblical texts and, and things like that, uh, you know, pick up a Bart Ehrman book or, or watch some of his YouTube debates or lectures. Uh, just a, a great guy, in my opinion. But I know there was something I wanted to talk about, and hopefully I'm not boring you guys to tears with uh, my unscripted approach here, all my tangents, etc. 
But I actually want to talk about Stefan Malinu. Malinu? How, uh, how do you say it? I'm tempted to just call him Stephen Malamute. But another interesting guy. Now, I can remember when I started this podcast a few years back. I was very naive in a lot of ways. I, I, I was probably what you would call an agnostic atheist, probably since my teen years, without even knowing it. I wasn't aware of the terminology. Um, I think when I was a teenager, I thought atheist, like a lot of Christians seem to still believe, is some old Grinch who wants to kind of pee on everyone's parade, who is arrogant and is 100% certain that there is no God. When it's when there's a significant overlap between agnosticism and atheism, and most atheists extremely doubt the existence of a higher power, especially when it comes to man-made belief systems, when it, when it comes to religion. Um, as Victor Stenger has said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, even he's somewhat agnostic when it comes to the notion of God in general, because it's like disproving a negative. You can't be intellectually honest and claim that you can somehow prove with 100% certainty that there is no higher power. But obviously, we lean in that direction and we have our reasons for doubting the existence of a higher power. But I think atheism can be like a sliding scale. You ask me, do you think there's any chance there might be a higher power out there? I'm extremely doubtful, uh, but yet at the end of the day, I'm technically agnostic on it. I don't have any definitive proof that there's not a higher power out there, but it's kind of a sliding scale. Then if you ask me, do I think someone walked on water 2,000 years ago? Uh, Do I think that Yahweh specifically exists? Uh, Do I think that Athena sprang from the head of Zeus or Jupiter? (laughs) Do I think that Odin really used to ride through the sky on an eight-legged horse? Um... No, no, I'm almost 100% positive that none of that stuff is real. But at the end of the day, I I don't know whether or not with complete certainty there is or isn't a higher power. I have strong reasons why I doubt the existence of a higher power, but my atheism strengthens significantly when you bring up specific religions and uh, superstitious man-made belief systems that make particularly ludicrous claims that seem to go against reason and the laws of nature and science. But anyway, here I am digressing again. As I was saying, when I first started this podcast, I was pretty naive. I was raised Catholic, as I've said a million times on the show. And But from a young age, I started to have these really kind of torturous existential bouts where I would struggle with the big questions, whether or not there's an afterlife, whether or not there's a God. And I wanted to believe more than anything that there was. The idea of there not being a God, of there not being an afterlife, absolutely terrified me and made me feel like I was teetering over this black, hopeless abyss. <laughs> you know, this uh, this nihilistic chasm that, you know, if there was no God or n- well, there was no afterlife, then life would be absolutely meaningless. And I wrestled with those questions for a very long time And what was most important to me was not just placating myself or pacifying myself with whatever beliefs would work. It was the truth. I felt some kind of duty to the truth that that I want to know what was real, even if it meant giving up 
some sense of existential comfort or some kind of religious or ideological security blanket. I wanted to know what's real, what's true. And my conscience, my that is my devotion to the truth, or the truth as best as I could suss it out. And my reason led me to the conclusion that, well, for certain, the supernatural claims of man-made religions are false. Or I'm about 99% certain they're false from what I can see. And as far as the idea of a creator in general, who knows? There might be a slight chance that there's something out there. We can't completely disprove it. But I have my doubts, you know, uh, um, severe doubts. And even if there is some higher power out there, let's say for the sake of argument, what is it? I mean, for simplicity's sake, I like to... I like to try to put concepts of God into one of two columns, you know, uh, the concept of a personal God and the concept of an, of an impersonal God. A personal God is a God that has human attributes or characteristics, if not physically, then in temperament or something like that. Uh, the Greek gods, the Norse gods, uh, these are personal gods, the Egyptian gods. These are gods that have anthropomorphic form. They have individual identities. Then you have the idea of an impersonal God, kind of like you, what you find in Eastern philosophy and religion. Um, the idea of that there's some kind of cosmic oneness, you know, that kind of permeates everything or binds everything together. And I say this half-jokingly, but it's a good example. The Force in Star Wars and George Lucas was influenced by... Um, Eastern philosophy and mysticism and by uh, people like Joseph Campbell, one of my personal heroes too, uh, Joseph Campbell. And kind of in Buddhism, Buddhism grew out of Hinduism the way Christianity grew out of Judaism. And even though Hinduism has a plethora of gods, you know, they have their whole pantheon, um, Buddhism really doesn't acknowledge the existence of the gods. It's kind of saying whether or not the gods exist, your liberation doesn't lie with the gods. Your liberation lies by trying to uproot or extinguish the ego self. Um, egolessness and detachment. Uh, that's where salvation lies. And of course, one of the main goals in Buddhism is the attainment of nirvana. And nirvana literally in Sanskrit means something like uh, extinguishing the flame or, or the candle or something like that. And when your enlightenment is so perfect, that's like the ego self no longer exists. You're just one with everything. That is nirvana. And that can be very hard for someone with a Western mindset to uh, wrap their uh, head around. And it can actually be kind of a disturbing notion at first, too. When you're coming from a Western Christian mindset where you're hoping beyond hope that your individual self will survive death and you're going to live in some celestial realm um, with God and a host of anthropomorphic angels or whatever it is, you know, and all your relatives. Uh, the idea that one's spiritual goal might be to eradicate the self, that can seem jarring at first. But it's funny, this idea of egolessness, of a kind of impersonal God, this sometimes even shows up in Christian mysticism. Uh, Meister Eckhart and things like that. If you've never read it, there's a great book by Aldous Huxley 
Uh, not the doors of perception slash heaven and hell, which I have talked about ad nauseum on the show, but the perennial philosophy is really just a, a collection, a kind of anthology of sayings pertaining to what's known as the perennial philosophy. The perennial philosophy is this idea of kind of losing yourself in divine union, of achieving this sense of oneness with the Godhead. And uh, even if, like myself, you're not a believer, it's still a really kind of great, fascinating book full of a lot of kind of inspiring and thought-provoking quotes. But that's The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley. It's, it's a good book to check out. Unless you're someone who has a low tolerance for mysticism, then uh, it might not be such a good book for you. But anyway, about 15 minutes ago or something, I said I wanted to talk about uh, Stephen Malamute, <laughs> Stephen Malamute. Um, I knew what I was getting at. When I started this podcast a few years ago, I was naive in a lot of ways where I was technically probably an agnostic atheist, um, but or just a plain old atheist. I know some people can't stand when an atheist uses the term agnostic atheist. Um, I'm not going to read the definition again. I've done that enough. But yeah, uh, when I started this podcast, the, the reason why I started it was my whole life I had dreamed of writing a book of philosophy and just a book explaining my take on life, my thoughts on the big questions, you know, God and afterlife, et cetera, et cetera. And when I started to consciously identify more as an atheist, that dream became the right, a book of philosophy that was more geared for an atheist audience or a skeptical audience. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that, holy crap, you know, it'll probably take me forever to write a book. And I still plan to work on that book. Uh, I think I have like in between like five and 10 chapters done or something. But I realized that writing a book would probably take me a long time where if I wanted to quickly reach people, I could sit my ass down in front of my computer, record myself, and publish a podcast, and I could do that every week. So I decided to start the podcast. Uh, I've also talked about how you know, it probably wasn't until four or five years ago at the most that I even learned who people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins even were. And I used to watch uh, especially Christopher Hitchens' debates and I was so inspired by him, and uh, I used to joke about how the way I felt watching like a Christopher Hitchens debate must be the way sports enthusiasts feel when they're leaning on the edge of the couch, uh, yelling at the TV during like the Super Bowl or something. And as brilliant as Christopher Hitchens is, he's one of my personal heroes. Um, I know it can seem weird to use the word hero when you're talking about someone that you admire intellectually. And... Uh, you know, but even the best of us, especially during a live debate or whatever, people can drop the ball. So if I would see like Christopher Hitchens or another atheist debater kind of let one slip past the goalie or whatever, I'd be like, oh man, if I was there, I would say this. And I thought, well, with this podcast, I can say that, you know, I can add my two cents to the conversation. So when I, I started this podcast, um, I didn't know a lot about YouTube atheism. I didn't know a lot about online atheism at all. Now, I had no idea who Stephen Malinue, who Stephen Malinue, Stephen Malamute was. Uh, um, but I had read a story about him online, a news story, where they talked about this atheist cult leader 
this dangerous atheist cult leader. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, that sounds so oxymoronic, like a atheist cult leader. Um, most atheists are, are, are free thinkers, unless you belong to atheism plus, huh? And, uh, you know, most atheists are free thinkers and promote rational thinking and uh, kind of intellectual independence, for lack of a better term. So the idea of an atheist cult leader made no sense to me. And I was reading in the article how he promoted something called defooing, which means basically leaving or decoupling from your uh, family of origin. So they made him sound like this classic cult leader who was trying to brainwash people with his own dogma and maintain control of them by separating or isolating them from their families. And I kind of bought into it. And early on in the show, uh, I is probably during the first year of the podcast, I did an episode called The Dark Side of Atheism. And I talked about Stephen Malinew. Ste- I just call him Stephen. <laughs> Stephen Malinew. I should just call him Stephen Malamute. Uh, Ayn Rand. And ironically, it actually turns out that Stefan is actually a big Ayn Rand fan. And uh, he's done like this installment series called The Truth About Ayn Rand. And each installment, I think, is hours long or something. Uh, I myself don't care much for Ayn Rand. I'm not taken by her writing. I don't think, uh, I think her, uh, I think people tend to over-exaggerate her worth as a writer or, or the quality of her writing. And I know there's reasons why she embraced this kind of super capitalistic mindset. And I think it has a lot to do with her background and where she came from. She was a European immigrant. And I think her zealously embracing and promoting capitalistic ideas was her kind of trying to throw off the yoke of the oppressive communism that her and her family were subjected to back in the old country, you know? And and so I get that. I actually have sympathy for her in that way. But I think, and this is part of the reason why I think a lot of um, far-right wingers are taken with Ayn Rand, is that she kind of took it to an extreme, to a point where the rich or the elites are the most important members of society. Screw everyone else. And of course, part of the, um, the theme of Atlas Shrugged is if all the big elites suddenly went missing or stopped doing their part, you know, society would just fall apart. And of course, you know, if, if all the little guys, if all the laborers, all the blue collar workers suddenly gave up, you, you'd have nothing. You know, there'd be no one to, uh, you know, there'd be no one to build your fancy buildings and roadways or whatever. But maybe I'm too much of a lib or a softy, but I don't really care for Ayn Rand. Uh, there's something uh, too cold about her approach for me that I, that I don't care for. So in that episode, The Dark Side of Atheism, I talked about Stefan Malinu, Ayn Rand, and... Uh, Levian Satanism, and I actually don't mind Levian Satanism, um, but I, I was talking, but I was talking about certain high-profile figures within the Levian Church of Satan, uh, or at least people who used to be high-profile figures. So, if you're not familiar, Levian Satanism is 
the form of Satanism founded by Anton LaVey, who is literally like a carnival huckster. Uh, and I don't say that as an insult. That's literally what he was. And he decided to start his own religion, basically. And to his credit, it's not theistic Satanism. It doesn't literally believe in Satan or the devil. It's really kind of an allegorical or symbolic kind of strain of atheism, I guess, where Satan or Lucifer is seen as a symbol of independence, of the personal will, of rebellion, but they don't believe literally in either God or the devil. So in that sense, I kind of like LaVey and Satanism, you know, uh, you know, sexy girls dressed in black, uh, celebration of rebellion, uh, goat heads and swords and stuff. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, but my only problem with LaVey and Satanism is I think some practitioners take this every man for himself survival of the fittest thing too far. You know, once again, maybe at the end of the day, I'm just a softie. Uh, I don't really care for the idea of the, I mean, Nietzsche's ubermensch, uh, social Darwinism, um, every man for himself. Uh, there's something kind of cold about all that stuff. Um, and I, I don't want to mischaracterize Levain Satanism because I, I don't think every Levain Satanist takes that attitude to the extreme. Um and I've heard a lot of Satanists say that, you know, it's good to be nice to people, it's good to love people, it's good to respect people, but then they have this kind of uh, dark eye for an eye thing. They'll respect you, they'll be good to you, but the moment you disrespect them or dick them over, then it's eye for an eye time. And I can kind of see the appeal to that, but I have to, like the older I get, the kind of more of a softy I become, I think. But I remember saying once in an interview with C-Web, I think he asked me and another guest, if you weren't an atheist, uh, what religion would you probably uh, follow or whatever? And I had a very kind of paradoxical twofold answer. I said I'd probably either be a Levian Satanist or a Buddhist. <laughs> and those, and uh, well, Levian Satanism, as I just explained, is, uh, is basically atheism with a kind of dark gothic decor you know or something and buddhism in a way you could kind of describe to some degree as being atheistic since since it has a heavy emphasis on impermanence um lack of belief in a creator god uh and basically the annihilation of of, of the self in a way so in that sense, you could say it's kind of atheistic. So even then, my two answers, there was still kind of uh, like I was leaning towards uh, belief systems that incorporated atheistic elements or something. But yeah, I mean, I could see how it could probably be fun to be a Levian Satanist. Uh, they must at least have some decent parties, I'd, I'd imagine. But I'd be like, oh man, do I really have to wear all black all the time? And <laughs> And do they do mundane stuff, like if you're having some orgy, you know, who's bringing the potato salad? Who's bringing the uh, the bag of discount cock rings or whatever? I, I don't know. Um, 
I guess I just like, that's why I kind of like being, uh, at least ideologically, I like kind of being a lone wolf. I don't even like belonging to atheist organizations. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want my worldview to be tainted by groupthink, um, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, so back to Stefan, I almost said Malamute, uh, Stefan Malinue, oh, however the hell you pronounce that, Malinue, Malinue. What's with French and all the silent letters? I always wondered that. Um, so my view of him has definitely softened. I, I'll even go as far as saying I like the guy. Um, but I know why other people don't like him. It's kind of like me and Bill Maher. <laughs> like, I'm a huge Bill Maher fan, and yet I sometimes have to kind of justify my affection or admiration for Bill Maher to even other atheists, because a lot of people find him snarky, obnoxious, unpleasant. And uh, I guess I'm the type, of, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I'm willing to overlook other people's shortcomings or not take the negative aspects of people's personalities too seriously and um, just kind of see the good in them and enjoy that aspect for what it is, you know? Um, but I actually, I, I love Bill Maher's snarky attitude. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can, I can totally, I'll totally concede. I mean, I totally concede that the guy comes off as kind of pompous or condescending at times, but I, I like it. You know, what, what can I say? Um, and it's the same thing with like Stefan Malinu or Stefan. It's the same thing with Stephen Malamute. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Where, um, I'll listen to him talk to callers and he's always, always cutting people off, telling them that they're running too long, sometimes even being kind of dismissive. And I can see why people find him conceited and obnoxious, but I still find his videos to be entertaining. Um, so I continue watching them. And in some ways, I actually think the guy, ironically, is actually quite patient He'll debate, like, young Earth creationists, flat earthers or whatever. And, yeah, once in a while, he'll try to rein them in or cut them off or, or kind of trap them in a corner and kind of prod them um, for the response he's looking for or whatever. But he'll also sit there and earnestly listen to them for long stretches at a time and spend, like, an hour or two hours out of his life you know, debating the person and giving them their time. So I'll give the guy that. My biggest thing with Stefan is, is that I still don't trust him 100%. You know, like I enjoy his videos. I like listening to him talk and engage other people. But if he states something as fact or whatever, and I suppose we should have this kind of healthy skepticism in general, especially as skeptics and free thinkers, you know, we shouldn't, we should never just take things as face value. We should want to double check things. We should want to seek out the truth for ourselves, etc. But more so with Stefan, if I hear him say something and he states it like a fact, I'm like, hmm, is that bullshit? <laughs> it's like, I still, I still don't know how seriously to take the guy uh, when it comes to a lot of things. And yet I enjoy watching his videos and there's nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, but so recently I've been binge-watching his videos. And he did this video called, I forget what the exact title was, something along the lines of 
an honest debate with a 9-11 truther. Yes, really. Or, or something like that. That's pretty close. It was something like that. And it's one of his newer videos. So if you go to his channel and click on the videos tab, you'll see it. It should be among the last few videos he's published or whatever. But it's kind of interesting. Stefan's known as having this almost cult-like following, you know, where uh, his adherents, his followers are very, like, fiercely loyal. And that's why I was surprised when the down votes, you know, the thumbs down just started piling up on that 9-11 video. I looked at the video once, and I think it had more upvotes than downvotes. And I went back again, and all of a sudden it had like 2,000 downvotes, I think, and like 1,000 upvotes or something like that. And I don't think I'd ever seen a video of his get a reaction like that before. But basically the gist of the video is... He's kind of taking the rational, down-to-earth approach to 9-11. And already, if there's any 9-11 truthers listening, they're probably going to take offense at me claiming that the anti-truther stance is the rational stance. But that's personally how I see it. And he's engaging this older gentleman. Uh, The guy sounds like he could be in his 60s or 70s. And he describes himself as someone who's been, you know, retired for decades or whatever. Um, and I actually did feel kind of bad because Stefan did do a lot of his usual kind of uh, su- semi-rudely cutting the person off and telling them to keep it shorter, kind of condescendingly lecturing them on how to talk during a debate or something. And because it was an older guy, uh, I felt kind of bad. But uh, this guy seemed like he knew his stuff, at least. You know, he was well versed on the standard truther arguments and all the nuances and and in and outs and finer points. And uh, like I said, Stefan took the more rational kind of mainstream stance. But the extreme reaction to the video, seeing this guy who has a really super loyal audience all of a sudden get like 2,000 downvotes, it really blew my mind. And, And to me, I think it kind of shines a light on the almost cult-like mentality or nature of conspiracy theorists. And I should say that I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. I'm not someone who just turns my nose up automatically at all conspiracy theories. Um, I do think that some conspiracy theories can have elements of truth to them or that often people do have good reason for not trusting the government. And the government has done some slimy stuff in the past. And there's things like the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, the Tuskegee experiments, stuff like that, where the government really has done some underhanded and very morally questionable stuff that in the long term has done nothing but play into the hands of conspiracy theorists and given them more fodder to work with. Because let's say if you don't buy into the 9-11 conspiracy, they can say, what about the Gulf of Tonkin? What about the Tuskegee experiment? Stuff like that. And then uh, what's the other one? Is it, I'm trying to think if it, is it Gladio or what is it? But there's another thing. Uh, anyone, if there's someone listening out there and I got wrong, they can correct me. I forget the exact name of, of the conspiracy or, or, or the plot or whatever, but it happened during the, presidency of of JFK and it involved Cuban immigrants and either 
the idea of possibly killing like 300 people or making it look like 300 people have been killed as an excuse to take military action or something like that. And some people use that as a precedent for 9-11 and saying, you know, if the government was willing to do that and that that plot was never put into action. But the fact that higher ups were even considering something like that is extremely troubling. Um, But I think there's a big difference between someone back in the Kennedy administration coming up with some lurid plot that never came to fruition that involved either killing or or making it look like 300 people had been killed for an excuse to go to war or something. Um, Oh, I know what it was now. Operation Northwoods. Okay. And this is from um, Wikipedia. And I know Wikipedia, a lot of you consider it questionable. Now on top of it, I'm getting information about conspiracy theories from Wikipedia. Uh, so take it all the grain of salt. But Operation Northwoods was a proposed false flag operation against the Cuban government that originated with the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States government in 1962. The proposals called for the Central Intelligence Agency or other U.S. government operatives to commit acts of terrorism against American civilians and military targets, blaming it on the Cuban government and using it to justify a war against Cuba. The proposals were rejected by the Kennedy administration. Okay, so I guess my point is I think there's a difference between proposing an unethical plot and actually carrying one out. Especially, I don't know where I got that 300 number from. That's... I heard someone discussing uh, Operation Northwoods and, uh, yeah, involved um, possibly either actually attacking uh, civilians, military personnel, or Cuban immigrants trying to reach the U.S. or something, or just making it look like that had happened, but not actually hurting anyone. Um, But even the idea that they may have considered actual targets, I mean, it's disgusting. But So I don't know where I got that 300 number from, if that's actually relevant or not, or not. But I think there's a difference between someone proposing an idea like that and actually killing 3,000 American uh, citizens. And you can point to things like um, the Tuskegee experiments. You know, we had the U.S. Public Health Service telling hundreds of African-American men who had contracted syphilis that they were treating them, you know, giving them injections and everything. And they actually weren't treating them at all. The point of the study was to observe the course of untreated syphilis. So I can understand, you know, when we have real examples of of how the government can do stuff like that, why it makes people more likely to believe in 9-11 conspiracy theories and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, I'm not super naive. I'm not gullible. Uh, I'm a skeptic after all. So do I think the United States government is capable of lying to the American people? Absolutely. Do I think the United States government is capable or willing to exploit a tragedy as an excuse or impetus to go to war? Absolutely. I I think that's what happened with... uh, Um, the war in Iraq. Um, Do I think the American government would slaughter 3,000 innocents, uh, most of them American citizens, as an excuse to go to war? I don't think so. And not just because it it morally offends me and I don't want to believe it's true, but I think there's probably 
easier ways to lie your way into a war than to murder 3,000 individuals on American soil. And I think there's probably less risky ways, too, because that's the type of thing. The American people can be pretty complacent, and they're willing to look the other way when it comes to a lot of government abuses, etc. But I think if the American people ever found out that the government intentionally killed 3,000 people on American soil, once again, mostly Americans, but but of course the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, was, was this kind of global financial headquarters in a way. So you had people from all over the world working in the World Trade Center. Uh, But mostly it was Americans who died. If the American people ever found out that happened, I think people would go ballistic. I think you would have people trying to hang politicians in the streets. You know what I mean? I I can't see people stomaching that. Um, I'd probably take to the streets if I found out that was true. And... Of course, in fairness to the truthers, there's different kinds of, uh, you know, there's different flavors of 9-11 conspiracy theories. They're not all the same. You have people, and this is pretty extreme, people who believe there were no planes, people who believe there was a combination of the planes actually hitting, uh, but in conjunction with the detonation of explosive devices that the towers had been supposedly rigged with. Um, then you have what you call them, like the lie hop and my hops, uh, or whatever, like people who believe the government let it happen on purpose and people who believe the government made it happen on purpose. And I believe that maybe, maybe there's some validity to the lie hop idea. And even that, you know, is questionable, but do I think it's beyond the realm of possibility that the government may have caught wind of an impending terror attack and either negligently didn't give it enough credence or brushed it aside and, or, you know, put it on the back burner, um, or worse that they caught wind of an an impending attack and actually thought, Hmm, we can use this to our advantage if it does actually happen. And I think that there could be some possibility of that. I mean, you have, uh, I mean, Osama bin Laden was on Bill Clinton's radar and uh, Bill Clinton failed to kill him. And then the Bush administration took over. And I think the Bush administration ignored warnings about Osama bin Laden. And my guess is, I'm willing to g- give the government a little bit of credit. My guess is something like that may have been on the radar. And I think it's possible that even was. And the government didn't take it seriously enough. But do I think there might be like a slight possibility that they saw it coming, you know, and said, let's see if it really happens. Eh, if it turns out it does happen, we can use this as an excuse to get into Iraq because the Bush administration had a boner for getting back into Iraq. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, to put it crudely. So I think that's one possibility. But the stuff about no planes or the government rigging the Twin Towers with explosives and the government being actually actively behind it all. I find that tough to believe. The thing about the no planes, and like I said, in fairness, not all 9-11 truthers believe that there weren't any planes, but that seems like the most ridiculous argument to me. 
because those of us who were alive and you know cognizant enough to remember we all saw on tv the planes fly into those buildings people private citizens with camcorders and whatnot recorded the planes going in to those buildings so in order to fake planes flying into the twin towers you would have had to have created some kind of cgi imagery of planes crashing and exploding and then upped that live to every news station that played video of the planes hitting the towers um you would have had to have faked the camcorder recordings of you know the citizens who took images of the planes going into the towers or whatever so it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold water logically whatsoever. It should be a no-brainer. And if you actually believe planes didn't hit the towers, you probably have no brain. Or, you know, maybe you have like a rep- reptilian brain stump or something. But, uh, but yeah, so that doesn't, that makes absolutely no sense to me. You know, you, you would have had to have like industrial light and magic CGI the plane, planes going into the towers and then convince every news station to let you uh, up that image live or something. It's, it's, it's baked. It makes no sense. And the thing about the government rigging explosives through the towers, that I find problematic in two ways. Practically speaking, as many people have said, you would have had crews pulling sheetrock off, wiring all this cable throughout the buildings, planting explosives, without raising any suspicion or without anyone letting the plan slip or whatever, you know, uh, without anyone leaking the truth about what was going on. And then I just don't think it's practical. Once again, if if the government wanted to go to war, there was probably other things they could, they could have like, we didn't find any WMDs said what they found some yellow cake or something. They, they could have just used the WMD excuse as a reason to go to war, or they could have hammered us over the head with images of dead Kurds or whatever the hell atrocities Saddam and his sons were committing. And we probably would have, uh, went along with it. So yeah, trying to covertly wire, you know, two of the tallest buildings in the world or whatever with explosives and, uh, detonate them exactly as the planes hit them or rig them so the planes so if the planes hit just the right way the explosives would go off causing the uh, buildings to fall it it seems pretty darn far-fetched to me and you know what's funny that video of Stefan's or whatever uh or I was gonna say Stefan isn't that the character from Saturday Night Live the uh the gay kind of like nightclub dude but that led me to watch videos of both 9-11 debates and 9-11 conspiracy videos. I started watching interviews with the Loose Change guys and debates with the Loose Change guys. And the Loose Change guys, they were 20-somethings at the time they made the first movie. They kind of really helped to fuel the 9-11 truth movement. Their movie, their Loose Change movies were a huge part of the the 9-11 truth movement. And I saw, I don't know if it's, is it Dylan Avery? What's the kid's name? I forget. The one with the glasses. 
and the cocoa puff mole on his face uh, in the corner of his mouth. But I saw an interview with him and, and the other loose change guys, and he was talking about how subsequent iterations of the movie, you know how they did kind of addendums and they release different versions uh, or kind of sequels or whatever. But later versions of the movie, he was talking about how they intentionally moved away from the no planes thing. Uh, what was it? Well, I'm not sure if they were ever big on the no planes, but they said that they intentionally moved away from the controlled demolition idea and the cell phones wouldn't have worked up in the air idea. They said they moved away from both of those and instead started the focus on building seven. So here you have some of the major players in the truth movement, guys who really helped to fuel the truth movement in the first place with their movies, saying that they were moving away from the cell phone argument and the controlled demolition argument. And I'm like, well, what else do you have? You know what I mean? I'm like, okay, building seven, whatever. Um, And and I think a lot of people are are kind of maybe a little suspicious about building seven. Um, But some of the most spurious arguments involve things like no planes. It was a controlled demolition plotted by the government. And the uh, cell phone calls were fake. There's no way they could have made calls up that high, which is, of course, incredibly offensive to the, um, the families of the victims who actually spoke for the last time to their loved ones as they were, you know, right before they died on those planes. So if all you're left with, if you take away the controlled demolition, the planes didn't really hit the buildings, and the uh, crisis actor slash fake phone call argument, I mean, you don't really have much of a juicy conspiracy left, do you? I don't know. But it's kind of funny. I mean, given all this... I think I have a pretty rational take on all of it. It absolutely amazes me just how seemingly overzealous and blindly devoted to their narrative of choice many of these truthers and conspiracy theorists in general are. And I'm not the first to point this out, but I think it really does boil down to a few things. I think people like to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. People like to feel special, like they're in the know. They're not like the blind sheep. They can see the truth. I think it gives people a sense of importance. There's this huge conspiracy that no one else can see, and we're going to be the ones to solve it. You know what I mean? And it might also have to do with the fact that, as many skeptics like to say, we're pattern-seeking animals. So people look at things like Operation Northwoods or the Gulf of Tonkin. They say, well, the government's lied before, um, so maybe they're lying this time. And I can actually kind of see the merit in that thinking. But you want to let the evidence do the speaking and not jump to conclusions. And I'm a big Joe Rogan fan, and, and Joe kind of flirts with conspiracy theories. And I've heard him take people to task before for kind of in a blanket fashion, kind of thumbing their noses at conspiracy theories. And I think, of course, conspiracies are real. Whenever you have a group of people behind closed doors um, talking or planning, you know, that's it's kind of a conspiracy. But that doesn't mean all these wild, fanciful conspiracy theories out there are true. And I think what matters, once again, is the evidence. And if you want to find the truth, I feel like you can't approach these things in a 
hyper-reflexive, reactionary kind of way. You have to approach them rationally and actually try to sift through the evidence and, and apply reason. And like I said earlier, some 9-11 conspiracy theories seem to be more measured uh, than others. The idea that the government may have known something about an impending attack beforehand, like I said, I'm, I'm open to that. Uh, that's, I think it's fair to speculate about that. But something as a rationalist suggesting that there may not have been planes involved when we have all this video footage of the planes hitting the towers, it's ludicrous. It spits in the face of reason. All right, but anyway, I've rambled long enough. I'm going to call this episode a wrap. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. You can check out the archives at Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. You can subscribe to the show or rate the show through iTunes. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget on the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or you can go to Patreon. There's another P. And uh, just go to patreon.com slash theweekendout. And you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, I think it is. And uh, quit anytime you like. But I'm going to leave you with another Voice of Doom song, as promised, in its entirety. And I don't know which one yet because I'm going to pick it during the editing process. Uh, but all right. Thanks, everyone. And until next week. Okay.